If you would, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, our next three weeks, we're not going to be in Acts. Um, we're going to be in Acts three weeks from now. But for the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different convictions we have as a church. Um, I like to use the word convictions instead of the word value. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with value, but value seems to have this connotation of something you just believe and hold on to, whereas a conviction is something you believe that moves you, that propels you forward. And so we do have a, a number of convictions as a church, and we're going to look at three of them. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the authority of God's word. Uh, next week, we're going to look at gospel community. And then the week after that, we will look at seeking the welfare of the city. And then we'll be back in Acts. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at the authority of Scripture. Uh, I was going through my notes in preparation for this, and I thought, surely I've preached on this a number of times over the last 10 years here at Redeemer. And I was somewhat surprised to find I've preached on this one time in the last 10 years, uh, the authority of Scripture. And, and the reason I think I haven't had to explicitly preach on the authority of Scripture is because it's one of those givens. I, I hope you understand that that's a given. We begin every service with the reading of Scripture. We end every service with the reading of Scripture. Every sermon is saturated in Scripture. We go through books of the Bible from the pulpit. Uh, everything we do, we, we try to do according to the scriptures, but I realize that it is good for us from time to time to actually dig in and explain the why. And I want to explain the why. I realize I'm going to have to preach this sermon differently than I would have preached it or heard it 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, when I was a, a youth, uh, 15, you know, in the youth group, uh, the authority of the Bible was preached on a lot. Um, but it was always done through this apologetic, you know, means in which the, the pastor would defend the Bible. Uh, the pastor would get up there and say, these are all the reasons you could believe that the Bible is true and just really pound that in. Give us all these facts, all these archaeological evidences, all this stuff, like you could trust your Bible. And, and that's how I was taught that. But what I've realized is you can't do that in this culture that's not where we are as a culture, and that's not where we are as a church, because I come upon person after person who would say, you know, all you're saying might be true, but why does it matter to me? And so truth isn't a trump card. Truth isn't something you just put out there like, okay, we, we hear and we receive the truth, therefore let it change our life. It doesn't matter now. We, we don't just need to hear truth, but how does that truth really affect me. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning is really the why, why the authority of the Bible is so important to us. There's a lot of places we could look, but we're going to predominantly look at Deuteronomy chapter six and chapter eight. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You tell, shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Go down to chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. 
The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we pray that in this moment, through the power of your spirit, the words that we have just read would be so much more than black ink on white pages. But we would hear your living son speaking to us, calling to us. Lord, may you be present in this room through your spirit, actively working in our midst. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So I often get asked by people to recommend them a good book. Uh, I don't know why, probably just because I'm a pastor. People assume I read a lot. And so uh, they ask, well, what's a good book I could read this year? And, and pretty much every time I'll say, well, why don't you read the Bible? And uh, yes, I get, I get that kind of reaction there. Uh, usually a person rolls their eyes and like, okay, Mr. Holier Than Thou, um, of course, of course the Bible, but besides the Bible, what else should I read? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but all over Instagram and Facebook, people are posting pictures, you know, of, of their reading list for this year. You know, you got to neatly stack your books, you know, get it just right. Take the picture. You know, if that inspires you to read more, you know, go for it. Uh, I've been ribbing all of my uh, pastor friends who have been doing that because as they posted picture after picture online, not one of them has had a Bible. And I just have to point that out. I was like, really? You know, I'm going to just kind of read the Bible this year. And then it's Mr. Holier Than Thou again. But, but I do want to push that. I want to press that into us a little bit, that we should actually read our Bible uh, and not just go to all these other books. And I'm assuming that we all have Bibles. It is the number one bestseller. Uh, it's not even close. And so probably most of us have a Bible in our home. Uh, I counted this week. I have 15 Bibles that I could see in my house, uh, which means I'm holier than you, uh, pretty much. It's just... Uh, it's amazing. I can't find my phone anywhere, but literally on every flat surface at our house, there seems to be a Bible scattered around there. And so you probably have a few Bibles floating around uh, your house as well. Um, and there's so many different Bibles to choose from. And so besides your translations, you know, you have your ESV, you have your NIV, you have your KJV, your NKJV, your NAS, your NRS, your NLT, your CET, you have all these different translations you could choose from, but then you have your own kind of like custom Bibles. You have your application study Bible, the creative Bible, the every man's Bible, the beautiful word coloring Bible, the adventure Bible, the inspiring Bible, unlike those other Bibles. Uh, the praise Bible, also unlike those other ones. The one-minute Bible, 
uh, or the three-minute, depending on your devotional life, the three-minute uh, study Bible, the one-year chronological Bible, and then let's not forget about the princess Bible, uh, not to be outdone by the precious princess Bible, not to be done by God's little princess Bible, which is not to be undone by my beautiful princess Bible. Uh, there are no prince Bibles out there. It's only for little princesses out there. There's the Action Bible, the Amplified Bible, the Archaeological Study Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the She Reads the Truth Bible, which I love. There's, there's literally a Bible for every person out there, no matter what your specific need is. There's a Bible for everyone. And I found that we, we buy Bibles kind of like we buy new workout clothes, just hoping this time, <laughs> this time, you know, it's going to make a difference, you know, because the reason you didn't work out last year is because, you know, you didn't have the right running shoes. You didn't have the right, you know, tights. Um, but, but now, I mean, now you got the new Reeboks, you got the Lululemons, all right, you've got it, you've got it all together. So this time you're going to exercise. Um, and then you're looking like when, when it quits raining, you know what? I'll start exercising when the weather improves. And finally, you're like, you know, gosh, I'm just going to go to Target, you know? And because uh, if you go to Target, it looks like everybody arrived after running a marathon. They're all dressed to run marathons. <laughs> but they're just shopping in their new activewear. That's just, that's just what they do. <laughs> but th th we do this with our Bibles, don't we? We think uh, if I just get a new Bible, get a new journal, get my new pen, get a, you know, my new Bible reading plan. And this time, this time it's going to take. And if we do read our Bibles, if we actually start getting in and reading our Bibles, we find that we actually use it more as a supplement. It's a supplement to the other books that we actually devote most of our time and attention to. Uh, and what I mean is this, if we are struggling with being single or struggling with dating, or if we are struggling in our marriage, What's the first thing we do? We, we go get a book about it. Or we go online and we try to find some blog or some article about dating or an article about marriage. And we go there first. And hopefully if it's a good book or a good blog that it's going to mention some scripture and it's going to kind of lead you towards Christ, we do that. that that's, that's great. But, but rarely do we actually go to the primary source. Go there for our encouragement. And so we usually use the Bible almost as a supplement to the other things we go to. Now, and I get it. I mean, I really do, because the Bible is a long, at times complicated book, or 66 books, written by many authors that spans a history of thousands of years. Uh, and it is not arranged topically. So it's pretty maddening, actually, that it's not. I mean, imagine if I had started this sermon and I said, I would like everybody to open up their Bibles to the section on parenting. What would you have done? You're like, ah. I would like everybody to open their Bibles to the section on dating or on marriage. You wouldn't know where to go. And it really is maddening. I mean, I got to confess, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if our Bibles had those tabs where you could be like, I struggle with anger, or I struggle with parenting, or parental anger, you know, and like, you find that tab, 
and you can just find it and you can flip it or like you want the tab for how to raise, you know, three girls in an iPhone culture, you know, find, find that tab and, and like, and just read it. I mean, honestly, wouldn't it be so much easier if that's how the Bible was structured, but it's not. And you know what? God did it intentionally this way. This wasn't by accident. God intentionally gave us his word this way. A word spoken through many people in many different times and cultures, spanning a history over thousands of years. And all of the application points in there, those points that we so crave, the reason so many of us just go to the Bible, all of those application points are actually woven into the much greater grand story of creation and redemption. And that's what we see. And the reason is there's not an area in our life that we can live in isolation of God's grand story. There is no little isolated area that you could just go to and I I just want to fix this here. God says, that doesn't work that way. Every part of your life fits in to the great narrative going out throughout all of human history, creation and the redemption. And so we have to see it through that lens. And I get it. It, it can be hard. Now, people all of the time, they came up to Jesus and they asked him for answers concerning a certain application or for a certain topic. And Jesus always responded to them. Haven't you been reading your Bible? I mean, I was just going through Matthew this past week, and you have in Matthew chapter 12, uh, you have people coming to Jesus and they're asking about the nature of rest or the nature of the Sabbath. And Jesus responds, well, have you not read what King David did? I mean, King David, how he took the showbread that was in the temple when he was hungry. He, he did something that wasn't lawful at that time. And so he pointed to scripture to teach them an application point. Later in Matthew 19, people came to him and said they wanted to know more about the nature of marriage and divorce. And Jesus responded, well, have you not read? God created them male and female. In Matthew 21, more people came to Jesus. And this time they wanted to know about the nature of worship. What does worship really look like? And Jesus says, well, have you not read? That out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, God has prepared praise for himself. People come to him and they ask about what is the end times going to look like? What is judgment going to look like? And Jesus says, well, have you not read? Have you not read that the stone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone? Over and over again, Jesus asks the question, have you not read? Have you not read? Never once does he point to somebody and say, have you not read this book? Have you not read this article? Have you not listened to that teacher? Over and over again, Jesus says, have you not read the scriptures? And here's here's the thing. He was talking to people who had. All of those arguments, those those questions that I just said, they, they came from people who were scribes and Pharisees, people who had given themselves to the study of scripture, but they were reading scripture differently than Jesus was reading it. They were reading Scripture just to gain information, just to gain knowledge, to learn what God had said in the past. Jesus went to scriptures to hear what God is saying in the present, how God is still speaking to us, still communicating to us. Jesus went to the scripture to hear God's very own heart. And there's a world of difference between approaching scripture those two ways. 
Uh, Jesus, he gave a parable in Luke chapter 16. Uh, And it's an unusual parable. It, It was about a rich man and a servant of his named Lazarus. And the way the parable goes, the rich man and Lazarus, they both die. And when they die, they, one goes to hell, the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to paradise where he's with Abraham. And in the parable that Jesus is giving, the two sides can see one another and they can talk to one another. And so you have the rich man and Lazarus uh, looking at one another, and the rich man's in agony. And while he is in agony, he, he, he yells out at Abraham, and he asks for help. And, and he says, I know I'm here, but can you warn my brothers? My brothers, they are still living. And maybe could you send Lazarus? I see Lazarus there. Could you send him back from the dead and go and warn my brothers about this place? And Abraham responds, says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The rich man, he thinks, I must not have, must not have gotten through. If a dead person were to come back to life and go and warn my brothers, they would listen to him. Absolutely. And Abraham responded with these earth-shattering words. He says this, because if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just let that sink in. If they do not listen, presently listen to Moses and the prophets, they neither would they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That is a weighty, weighty statement concerning the power of Scripture. Jesus was saying this in this parable. God still so powerfully presently speaks through his word that it has more of a transformative power in another person's life than if somebody were to be raised from the dead and go talk to that person. That's how powerful his word is. And it's interesting. I think Jesus goes on later to prove his point. Um, When Jesus gives parables, he He never names people. He never gives them names except for here. He names the poor person Lazarus. The rich man doesn't get a name because he's just a rich man, all right? But Lazarus is given a name. For one, I think God knows every one of us by name, but I think he gives them the name Lazarus for a different reason. Because shortly after this, Jesus is going to raise somebody from the dead. And who is that person? Lazarus. He actually raises a Lazarus from the dead who goes out and the Pharisees and the scribes see him. And do you know what they want to do with Lazarus? Put him to death. Literally a man raised from the dead goes to them and they're not convinced. This is they sought to put Lazarus back to death. I don't know what miracles or signs we often ask or look for from God to know that he's real and that he is speaking to us. You know, we all think of these like, oh, if I could just have this, if I could just have this. Hear Jesus' own words here. I gave you my word. 
you have the scripture. Think of the power. It's more powerful than if somebody were to rise from the dead and talk to you. Listen to God speak through his word. And he speaks in the present tense to us. If you are bored with your Bible, it's because you only believe in a God who spoke in the past. There is no way you can be bored if you are looking in your word and you're saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And you want to hear the words of God speak to you. All right, let's look at Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at that again. Verses 4 and 5 should be familiar to you. Um, It's called the Shema. The hero, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus said this is the most important commandment, that and to love your neighbors as yourself. But I want us to look at verses 6 through 9 here. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, Jesus or God here, he could have just said, remember these, these words. Just, just remember them. But, but instead, he, he lays it all out for how you're to remember and how you are to read. And he says, you need to put your words in your heart and you need to talk about them with your children. And when you're sitting down, you're thinking of them. When you're, when you're standing up, you're thinking of them. When you're walking, you're thinking of them. When you're lying down in bed, you're thinking about these things. Pretty much all of life. He's describing all of life here. The word of God is is central. And then he even adds, and and put them on your door. Put them on your gates. Bind them as a sign on your hands. Put them as frontlets between your your eyes. Do whatever it takes to make the word of God central. And then he says the same thing again, Deuteronomy 11. The same thing again in Joshua 1. He is pounding this home in us. That this should be what we do with Scripture. So it doesn't take much to see how important this is to God. But if we were to be honest, um, and I'm going to walk lightly here, but I'm going to walk here. Uh, If we were to be honest, when we read Deuteronomy 6, we would probably, most of us in here, have to confess that it seems like it's describing something else in our life. Something else that has become central. Something else that we look at when we are sitting down, when we are standing, when we are walking, when we are driving. First thing we look at when we wake up, last thing we look at before we go to bed. The thing that's a sign always on our hands, always before our eyes. It looks like it could be describing something else in our life, whether It's our constant need to to be checking whatever social media it is or our emails or text. Um, And I I really, I don't want to be the old man saying, get off my front lawn. All right. That's that's not why I'm going here. But do you know how devastating this is in our lives? 
Do you have any idea? And I'm not talking about the, like, just because every psychological study out there is going to tell you the harmful effects of screen time. I'm not even going there. This is why this is so devastating to us. It's because what we are putting central, the voices and the images that we are allowing to define our value, our self-image, our use of time, the things that we think about, think of the things that we are allowing to be central to us. And that creates such a shallow existence. I would almost call it subhuman. It is such a shallow, shallow existence. And God has something so much greater for us. You want to know the why? The why is he doesn't want you to be such a lonely, anxious, depressed generation. He, he wants us to be so much more, and that involves getting Scripture to be central to us. And it, it plays out like this. Knowing Scripture deepens your life. So walk through just some of the common experiences that you have. All right, I can, I can go to the hospital, and I can visit one of you when you have a, a, a baby. Um, one of the things that I enjoy doing as a pastor. And so, you know, I got to go into the Housens when they had their triplets. All right, how can you not be happy? I mean, when you're going there and you're seeing the triplets being born there and, uh, and, and you rejoice with them, but you want to take it deeper is when Psalm 139 comes to your mind. And you think, God, you formed their inward parts. God, you knitted them together in their mother's womb. I praise you, God, for Benjamin and Lucy and Charlotte. Are, they are fearfully and they are wonderfully made. And now that already good experience just got deeper and fuller. Or if on an Easter Sunday, I can see my girls dressed up in, in their pretty dresses, which, I mean, what father's heart would not melt when you, you see your daughters dressed up in such a way? Any father's heart would melt but you want to take that experience even deeper. You look at them and you think James 1, that every good and perfect gift comes from my Father in heaven. Lord, these gifts are from you. And it deepens it. Or you could go outside and you could look at the stars. You have to leave Birmingham because you want to see more than three or four. But like, you know, but go out. Who doesn't enjoy, you know, sitting under a big sky and looking at all of the stars? Everybody enjoys that but you want to deepen that experience, you think of Isaiah 40 and you hear God say, lift up your eyes and see who created these things. Don't just look at the stars, look at who created them. And he brings them out, he brings them out by number their host and he calls them each by name. And by his great might, not one of them is missing. All of a sudden these experiences become so much richer, deeper, fuller. You begin to enjoy life for, for the reason that God gave you life in which all of it's a celebration of who he is. All of life becomes worship when his word becomes central to us. This is actually what the first temptation of Jesus was about. Would the word of God be his very life? Remember the first temptation? You, you find it both in Matthew and in Luke. And the, one of the reasons I love the, the temptations of Jesus, because if you think of it, 
All the other very personal things that went on in Jesus's life, we don't know about. But this was the one thing that happened to Jesus when he was alone, and we know about it. And that means the only reason we know about it is if Jesus told others. He said, people need to know what happened here. And so Jesus pulls out something that happened to him personally and says, everybody needs to hear and to know this. They need to know these temptations. And the first one is crucial. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, so he's hungry. And as he's hungry, Satan comes to him and tempts him and says, command these stones to become bread. Now, Satan didn't appear to him, you know, in a skinny red suit and a pitchfork. Uh, then it wouldn't have been a temptation. <laughs> like, hey, it's, you're Satan. I'm not going to do whatever you say. Uh, Satan works in more subtle ways. Likely, you know, Jesus, he's out there in the desert. It's 40 days. He's hungry. He's tired. He likely just hears a voice in his head. I know you're hungry. Gosh, you've got to be so hungry. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, you are God, right? I mean, if, if, if you are God, can't you just create some food? I mean, look at those, look at those stones. They're about, the, they're about the size of the, the bread that you like, those rolls. Why don't you just turn those stones to bread? So the temptation comes this way, subtly. It has so many nuances, this temptation. The first being that Satan wants Jesus to doubt the word of God spoken over him just earlier. Once Jesus to doubt his identity, right before Jesus went out into the wilderness, he was at his baptism and God the Father spoke to him, this is my beloved son. He heard the word of God as clear as day, but that was 40 days ago. And now Satan suddenly goes, if you are the son, if he wants Jesus to doubt the very word that he had heard only earlier. Satan's saying, look at the, look at the circumstances out here. Is this really how a, a son would live? If, if you are a son, you would do these things. Jesus could have rationalized making these stones into bread. I mean, it's actually a good idea, isn't it? I mean, he's hungry. God doesn't want him to die. As God's son, he has the power to do this. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's even going to know. And he's just meeting a God-given desire. What could be wrong with that? But I want you to notice how Jesus does not argue with Satan. He does not debate with Satan. If you ever attempt to debate with Satan, you're going to lose. All right? He's got thousands of years of experience over you. You're going to lose. Uh, Jesus, he just goes to the word of God. And that's how he combats the devil. Now, now, don't think of, like, I grew up, I kind of thought of this, you know, like this is almost this duel, you know, going back and forth. Some of us think of scripture as like a Harry Potter duel. You know, uh, Satan's going to throw something at us. They're like, thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And Satan goes, well, what about lust? And it's like, well, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust. And then you're like, you know, you're just like, you're shooting spells at one another. And I used to think that's how scripture works. Um, I'll, I'll use a C.S. Lewis reference next time for those of you against Potter. But, um, <laughs> but that's what we think. Like you just kind of, you know, we just kind of fight the devil with it. You send a scripture this way. He distorts it this way. You just go back and forth. That is not at all what is happening here. 
When Jesus is talking to Satan here, he's trying to remind himself of something we all need to hear. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, and that's an active proceeding, every word that is currently coming out of the mouth of my father. I live because of the word of God. I exist because of the word of God. I am who I am because of the word of God. I find life in the word of God. He's reminding himself of this. Deuteronomy 8, the context there is Israel's been out in the desert for 40 years. They've been wandering around. God reminds them right before, after he's taken care of them for 40 years, he reminds them right before they enter the promised land. He says, hey, just remember these last 40 years, I was teaching you something. I was teaching you something. You were hungry and I fed you. Remember you had this desire in you and you looked around and you saw there is no way to meet this desire. There's nothing before me I see. There's nothing I hear. There's no way to meet this desire. But then I spoke and you were fed in a way that was unimaginable to you. Your fathers had never heard of manna. You had never heard of manna, yet you feasted because of my word. Now you're about to go into a land where you're no longer going to need that manna, but you are going to need my word. You're going to need my word. If you want to do more than exist and you want to actually live, you're going to need my word. That's what God is calling us to, not to walk around numbly existing, but to actually have the life that comes to us through his word. And so the questions we need to ask is, where does my heart find satisfaction? Where do I find life, not just existence? Do I go to my Bible for more than just guidance or for more than just rules or knowledge? Do I go to my Bible to hear words of life being spoken to me that I can make central so my entire life can be a celebration of God? That's what he's calling you to. Pray with me. Father, create in us a God-given hunger to hear you through your word. Your spirit breathing life into your word and writing it on our hearts. Make us hungry to do more than just exist. That we could take even good experiences. Lord, and the bottom could drop out in the depths that you were calling us to. Lord, I pray we would make the word of God central to our lives. As we leave this place, Lord, I pray we would hear over and over again that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.